Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by virtue and glory, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open God's word this morning and begin our study, let's bow our heads together and uh, ask the Lord's guidance and direction. Our Father, as we read your word, we are informed that it is sufficient for us, that you have given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, that your word is truth, and that your word gives us everything we need for sanctification, that we do not need to look elsewhere, but we need to dig deeply into your revelation to understand how it, what it means and also how it relates to how we face the adversities, the challenges, the heartaches, the joys, the prosperity of life. For in every situation, whether it is good or whether it is not, There is a way that we are attracted to sin. We have prosperity tests where we are tempted to think that we did it ourselves, and we have tests of adversity where we dive into depression and discouragement. But we know that your word tells us that you are sufficient, your word is sufficient, your grace has provided everything. We need to learn that, we need to apply it, we need to make it part of our day-to-day living, thinking, that this is our normal reaction is to go to your word. So we pray as we study today to learn more about what you have provided and how it impacts us. We pray we can focus and see how this changes the way we are to look at our uh, at the situations in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying in Ephesians. And we've come to a very practical section in chapter 4, beginning in verse 25, going down actually to about chapter 6, verse 30, uh, 6, verse uh, 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 6, 6, 9, not 6, 10. Go down to 6, 6, 9, and and very uh, directed. But sometimes we lose sight of the individual commands and issues here, and it helps to have a grid, sort of a summary that we can use that reflects what is in the Scriptures, derived from the Scripture, that enables us to develop the skills, the spiritual skills that are necessary to handle these situations. And so that's what we're looking at, and today we're going to look at the basic skills that God has has given to us. Now, we looked at Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 a couple of weeks ago, and where we have the command to be angry and do not sin. 
And I made the point that a lot of times when we get angry, it's just a knee-jerk reaction. Something happens. It's sort of like pain. Somebody kicks you in the shin, you immediately feel the pain. Well, are you going to lash out and hit them? Are you going to cry? Are you going to fold up? We don't know. that's, That's the decision we make after the initial reaction. So we are often uh, in a situation where we become angry. It's a passive verb there, which most people take as a middle because they're trying to figure this out, but it's passive. So it has this idea that we receive the anger. It's the result of of some incident that occurs. Then we have to decide, are we going to feed the anger or are we going to handle it with God's word? And so I pointed out last week that we have this this uh, emotional sin grid, and anger is really a gateway to this. And uh, we have various other sins that uh, develop if we um, if we uh, feed our anger, and if we nurture that anger. And it will develop into these other sins, sins of bitterness or jealousy towards others, resentment that develops into vengeance. Or maybe we react verbally and we have abusive speech. We try to intimidate people or we gossip with innuendo. Uh, sometimes we resort to violence or physical abuse and cruelty in terms of overt, overt sins. So, uh, or even emotional abuse and slander and gossip, sins of the tongue. So the whole range of sins get, can get affected and can uh, be ignited by a wrong response to uh, anger. So I've gone through this. I say the solution to this, the solution to every sin in our life is, is the, to go to the Scriptures. The Scriptures claim to be sufficient we live in a world, I pointed out last time, that has been termed the therapeutic age. And um, so our knee-jerk reaction so often is, well, that person just needs to go to counseling. The God-ordained counselor is the pastor-teacher. Until about 150 years ago, the counselor would, the, the pastor was called the a doctor of the soul. He was the soul doctor. And it is the scripture that claims to have authority over our suke, our soul, and our pneuma, our human spirit. Not the inductive methodology of various psychotherapists who go to their limited and often faulty models of human behavior. It always surprises people when they find out, I don't know how many there are today, there used to be over 300 models of human behavior. You know, some are based in pure materialism. It's all just has to do with chemical reactions within your body. Others are based on all kinds of other views having to do with parents or society or education, always doing what Adam did in the garden, that is shifting blame to somebody else rather than my own personal responsibility and volition. But Scripture says that it is God's Word that is the authority on the soul because God created the soul. He created the immaterial part of man's soul and spirit, in his image and likeness. And if you don't start there, you're not starting with what the Scripture says a human being is. 
you're, you're, you're building it off of some other uh, faulty basis. And even Christians who try to come up with a Christian psychology are often just baptizing both the models and the therapies because there's, there's hundreds more therapies than there are models. And so they come up with the therapies for, for, um, for handling these things. But we need to go to the Word of God. And so I pointed out last time, very briefly, I'll review this. We believe the Bible, and only the Bible has the answers. 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4, which I uh, quote frequently every Sunday, that God has given us everything, all things, pertaining to life and godliness. We go, secondly, to the fact that this is supposed to be a spiritual transformation in our lives, not a psychological transformation. Romans 12, 2, we are not to be pressed into the mold of the culture's values and methodology, and psychotherapy is one of those methodologies. We're to be transformed by the total renovation of how and what we think. How we think is more difficult to uh, investigate than what we think, but it's not just content, it's methodology. And so we have to be transformed by the total renovation of how and what we think. And then the third problem is just the world system, the spirit of the age. That's what it's talking about. Don't be pressed into the mold of the spirit of the age. And Proverbs 14:12 says, There is a way that seems right to man. That's what all your neighbors, all your family, all your friends say. This is how you need to handle it. But God says human viewpoint is the way of death. And so it seems like it's going to work. Everybody says so. This is what they did. But there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life, not uh, human viewpoint thinking. And Proverbs 16.5 repeats 14.12. So we started this look at basic spiritual skills last time, and we have to understand what the problems are. They derive from our three enemies. The first is Satan, the devil. He goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so we have Satan as the chief architect working through his demons of all of these various human viewpoint systems, which is basically the world. The world is presents an organized structure. That's the root meaning of the word cosmos for translated world. And Jesus uh, told his disciples in John 14:30 that I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. That's Satan. So the cosmic system is how I translate that. The world system is the devil system. So human viewpoint is just the worldly viewpoint. It's the same thing as the devil's viewpoint. There's no neutrality. And the third problem is the enemy within, which is our sin nature. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, that is according to the sin nature, you will die. This isn't spiritual death. This is carnal death that may lead to physical death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And that's not talking about getting salvation. It's talking about experiencing the uh, abundant life, the rich life that Christ has given us. He said, I did not come like a thief to steal and destroy, but to give life and to give it abundantly. 
So there's the challenge for us. Are we going to choose solutions that come out of the sin nature, the diagram on the left? And the problem there is it all seems good, but it's the way of death. Or are we going to select the viewpoint presented by God? Psalm 119.50, This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. It's a clear choice, either the word of God or the word of man. Jeremiah 2.13, Jeremiah indicts the Israelites as God was about to bring the judgment of the fifth cycle of discipline, he was to bring the Babylonians in who would completely destroy, decimate uh, the uh, people of Judah, and he would eventually destroy the temple and Jerusalem. And the reason for this is given in Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils, They have forsaken me. See, when we turn to human viewpoint solutions, we're forsaking God. We're turning away from God. We're saying, your solutions really won't work. I've got a better idea. That's the first problem. Uh, You have uh, forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That language is picked up in the Gospel of John that Jesus says when the Spirit comes out of your inward parts will come a river flowing a river of life and he's talking about the fact that uh, God is the source of life and what he has will give us abundant life but what they have done is they have hewn for themselves cisterns broken cisterns that can hold no water they've turned to idolatry Uh, Someone was recently talking with me, and he mentioned in a Bible study that um, that about about idolatry. And somebody in the Bible study said, "Well, we really don't have idolatry today." And this guy said, "Well, really." Then began to go through the various forms of emotional idolatry and intellectual idolatry. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 says that covetousness or greed is idolatry. So we don't have physical idols of wood, stone, and metal. We have more sophisticated idols of the mind. And we hewn cisterns. That A cistern is that which holds water. Those of you who have been to Israel, we've been in some enormous uh, cisterns that were uh, hewn out of rock where they would store water from the from the rainy season. And what God is saying is that instead of turning to him spiritually as the source of living water, uh, they were trying to uh, create their own source for water, for the water of life. They were turning to uh, idols. So we have this problem of idolatry. We have this problem of fleshly lusts, Paul, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11, which war against the soul. Hebrews 10.39 says that we are not among those who shrink back and thus perish, but are among those who have faith and preserve their souls. So again, there's two options. It is the path of what the Word of God says or not. It's a choice, as Moses put it in Deuteronomy 30:19, to choose life or to choose death. 
to choose the path of blessing or to choose the path of cursing. And it comes down to our volition. It comes down to what choices we make, what our priorities are. And so we started, or I ended that as an introduction last night, and last time rather, and today we're going to talk about the spiritual skills for life. Many of you have gone through this with me in detail. There are much more detailed studies of each one of these uh, up on our website. Uh, but this is kind of a summary, and I'm also covering this because some of you are new and you've never heard this and you desperately need it because of circumstances and situations in which you find yourselves. For those of you who think, well, I've heard this all before, I'm just going to think about what I'm going to do this afternoon, you probably need it more than anybody else. We all need to be reminded of this and these verses. And, you know, the interesting thing is, as a pastor, I pick up, go back and look at something I did, and I get new ideas, but I say, oh, I've forgotten that verse. Boy, that's a powerful verse. We have a tendency, I think it's our sin nature, likes to... Uh, hide things in a fog in our brain so we don't remember them. So I use the metaphor of a fortress. There are others who teach other things that are similar, but I choose a fortress because that's a metaphor that God chose. And I think it's important for us to stick with biblical language and biblical metaphor to the best of our ability. So we have a, a fortress and this fortress is spiritual. It's something that is built around our soul to give protection to our soul, to defend us against the assaults from outside. And when we look at this, it is as we're inside the fortress, that's where we're walking in the light. That's where we're walking in the truth. That's where we're walking by means of the Spirit. That's where we are abiding in Christ. That is what that is. Uh, we'll, I'll relate that to some other diagrams in just a minute. But when we're outside, we're walking according to the sin nature. We're walking according to the flesh. We're walking in darkness. We're walking like a spiritually dead person, living like a spiritual, spiritually dead person. So inside there's life, abundant life. Outside there's death carnal death, and darkness. Now, constructing this soul fortress is a lifetime endeavor. It doesn't happen all at once. It takes your spiritual life. It takes dedication. It takes focus upon the Word. It means washing your brain with the water of God's Word on a daily basis. Whether you're reading the Scripture, memorizing the Scripture, studying the Scripture, listening to Bible classes, but this has, you know, some people get the idea, well, I can come to church on Sunday morning for an hour, and I've got it. Well, the rest of the week, you are being bombarded with human viewpoint and temptations day in and day out, and you think that in 30 or 40 minutes a week, you're going to get enough biblical truth to defend yourself against all of the attacks for the rest of the week. I suggest if you think that, that you ought to get up and go home and find something more pleasurable to do than sit here because you're fooling yourself. This is a day-in, day-out procedure. It doesn't mean you always have to be in Bible class, but we have to wash our minds with the Word. When we get up in the morning, don't turn on the news. Open your Bible. Read some Scripture. 
We have a reading, several reading plans we recommend up on our, the Dean Bible Ministries website that you can look at to read through the Bible in a year. Well, maybe you say, I've just got such an intense schedule. Well, make sure that's true and not an excuse. Uh, everybody has different schedules, different uh, pressures. Some people read slower, some people read faster. But the average person in America can read through uh, about three or four chapters a day in 15 minutes. And if you do that, you will read through the Bible in a year. And uh, some days may be a little longer because some chapters are a little longer. Some days it's a lot shorter. Some days you come to uh, First, Corinth- First Chronicles, chapters 1 through 7, and you just skip that. <laughs> you play catch-up. So, you know, it takes a lifetime. It's a plan, and it's a piecemeal process, and it's dynamic. You don't build one thing and then build the next and then build the next and then build the next because some of you are really hammered by certain kinds of problems right now in your life, and you're going to really gravitate to figuring out how to how to apply the word on that problem. And so you may grow more rapidly in one area than in another area. So it's dynamic. And third, utilization of these spiritual skills enables you to stay in fellowship, to stay in in, in the fortress, to continue walking uh, by means of the Spirit. But failure to use these, uh, you're pretty much ejected out the front door of the fortress and out into darkness and carnality pretty rapidly. And unless you confess sin to get back in, you're in deep trouble. So it is important to use these skills to keep going. So when you fail to utilize the spiritual skills, you default to the arrogant skills. And we I'll get to a chart on that in a minute. So fifth, we either live in the soul fortress, which is the equivalent of walking by the Spirit, walking in the light, walking in the truth, living on the basis of being in Christ, that is the new man, Remember what we're studying. You have put off the old man, and now we have put on the new man, and we are to walk accordingly. So one of the things I'm pointing out as we go through this is how many of these spiritual skills are referenced by Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5. They're throughout the whole section. So we're either inside or outside, walking according to the sin nature. So the arrogant skills are basically the mantra of modern day. But they've been the mantra of humanity since Eve took a good look at the fruit in the Garden of Eden. So they begin with self-absorption. We're focused on self. We are the ultimate reference point in the universe, and we can determine what is right or wrong. So we're absorbed with our own ideas, and that leads to self-indulgence. If you need to learn something about self-indulgence, one good place is your neighborhood mall parking lot and observe the traffic. Then there's self-justification. Not one person who cut you off is unable to come up with an excuse for why they were right and you were wrong. We manufacture our rationales rapidly from our sin nature. Self-justification leads to self-deception. If you want to understand self-deception, read about what's going on in uh, the halls of academia today. 
they have been reveling in arrogance for so long that they can no longer see truth from error. And what they are promoting in most classrooms is a total fantasy. So we have self-deception, and that leads to self-deification. And a lot of professors believe they are God, and they are not, and they are promoting error. So we live in this world where people just just spiral on this cycle, and the result of that is that it destroys our soul. There is a darkened diagram of our soul there, uh, comprised of our self-consciousness, mentality, conscience, and volition. And it is stormy, and it is fragmented. And that's what happens as we live on the basis of arrogance. It is self-destructive. Now, we've looked at this diagram many times that in our relationship to Lord, we, with the Lord, we have this positional reality that we are in Christ. That's the new man as we've studied in, uh, in Ephesians. That is our legal position. And the instant we are baptized by the Spirit, we are in Christ. But our experience is indicated by this other circle where we are filled by the Spirit. We are walking by the Spirit. We're walking in the light. That's why it's a white circle. That's what we mean by the soul fortress. It's it's just looking at the same teaching through different teaching mechanisms. As long as we are walking in the light, being filled by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, we have that protection that comes from using the spiritual skills. That's how we stay there, and we're not uh, kicked out by our attempts to solve problems man's way instead of God's, God's way. Another diagram I've used is this one, which puts all of these uh, spiritual skills up here on the screen. And we'll talk about each of these as we go through, so you don't have to try to write all of this down right now. But this is, the, this is the, what describes the circumference of the circle. It's our uh, confession of sin, walking by the Spirit, faith rest drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, a personal sense of our eternal destiny, personal love for God, our impersonal or unconditional love for all mankind, our occupation with Christ, and sharing the happiness of God. When we're applying these things, we stay inside the circle. When we stop, we go out, and the first thing we have to do is confess to get back in. So the issue is always our volition. We are the result of the decisions that we make in life. So we have to choose to apply these skills. So that means we have to learn what the skills are, and then we have to use them. Whenever I think about this, I go back to when I was about seven years old and I went to my first piano lesson. And I began to learn the keys and learn to play basic uh, C scale. And I had to go home and practice that over and over and over again until it became second nature. And then it was later scales and later techniques. But that's how a skill becomes a skill. You're not born with skills. You learn skills by practicing them. And you practice every single day. And in my house growing up, I had 30 minutes every single morning where I had to go into the living room and sit at the piano and practice. 
And that went on for about 10 years. I don't play so much anymore. That's my piano over there. But I haven't played it in decades. Uh, Same thing when I played trombone. You just had to play these things over and over and over again till they got into the muscle memory of your fingers or the muscle memory of your embouchure, that's your, your, your mouth muscles. And then you would be able to play when you were called upon. But if you don't practice until... Until it's time to uh, time to put on a concert, then you're not going to do very well. Putting on the concert is comparable to when you hit some adversity. All of a sudden, you think, "Oh yeah, what was that verse? What what, what am I supposed to claim here? I better get my Bible out." The fortress concept comes out of numerous passages in the Psalms. Six times in the Psalms, God is referred to by this metaphor as a fortress. The word, the Hebrew word, is Matsuda. Matsada is the word that comes from that in the English. That is this fort- fortification that is on this butte here to uh, in the illustration. That is the fortress of Masada that was uh, it, it, probably a fortress there even back in David's time, but it was developed by King Herod uh, during his time. So we have passages like Psalm 31, 2 and 3, Bow down your ear to me, deliver me speedily, be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake. Have you ever prayed that way? God, I'm in this bind, but for your name's sake, your reputation's at stake here to deliver me. And I'm trusting in you to do that. You are my rock and my fortress. Lead me and guide me. Psalm 71.3, be my strong refuge to which I may resort continually. You have given the commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Psalm 91.2, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him I will trust. God is our fortification in which we hide. Psalm 144.2, my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer. Notice, I love this verse, all of these different metaphors. He's our fortress, tower, deliverer, shield, the one in whom I take refuge. That's our God. There's not a single problem you face in life that you can't take refuge in the Lord for. That's what he's there for. So we're going to build this soul fortress And this is showing the entry point. See, we have a drawbridge over here, and it's on it it says confess. And you have to confess sin in order to get inside the fortress. So why do we confess sin and what is confession? This is often misunderstood, and you can go to uh, some pastors and some theologians that say, well, 1 John 1.9 is salvation, or 1 John 1.9 doesn't talk about what you're saying it talks about. And I've heard some people, even within our uh, general uh, camp of doctrinal teachers or teaching churches, and they say that. The problem is there are only two ways that are out there in the world for understanding the theme of First John. Only two. 
One is that this is a book about showing a contrast between believer and unbeliever. If you take, if you think that's what First John is all about, then First John one nine becomes more of a salvation verse because we're not talking about the difference between two kinds of Christians. And I know some people who don't agree with me on First John one nine, but I keep telling them that you're acting like you're in lordship salvation. You're acting like you're in some kind of uh, reformed theology because that's how they take that book. Everything, you know, you know, theology is a matrix and it has many, many, many different points. And if you go over here and tweak this one, then it's going to change everything else to one degree or another. So if you shift your position here to be consistent, you've got to change a lot of other things. A lot of people can't think and a lot of pastors can't think that deeply, but that's the way it is. So we have confession all through the scriptures, and it's defined for us uh, two places in the Psalms. Psalm 51.1, David has sinned. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he conspired to have that adultery covered up uh, by having her husband killed. Once she got pregnant, it would be obvious that something had happened, and so he had he conspired to have her husband Uriah uh, put on the front line so that he would quickly lose his life in the battle. And now his his sin has been exposed by by Nathan the prophet, and he writes this psalm related to his confession. He says, "Have mercy upon me, O God." According to your loving kindness, notice his appeal. This is a well thought through uh, psalm. You're going to go to confess. Why? I'm going to appeal to God's grace. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So he has four things he asked the Lord to do. Have mercy upon him, blot out his transgressions, wash him from his iniquity, and cleanse him from his sin. This idea of cleansing is the one word you have in most of these passages. People say, well, I can find confession of sin in 1 John 1, 9, but nowhere else. Well, you're focusing on the wrong word. The word is you need to be cleansed from sin. And 1 John 1, 9 tells you how, as well as many other pa- several other passages, as we'll see. And what confession means is in this word, acknowledge. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. It's the Hebrew word yada, which means to know. And it has the, a wide range of meaning, but part of it has to do with recognizing or admitting something, acknowledging it, or confessing it. That's what confess means. It doesn't mean remorse. It doesn't mean repentance. That was always something you had to deal with in, when uh, over in the Russian-speaking areas because they translated it with a Russian word that meant remorse. doesn't mean that. It means to admit or acknowledge something. And this is clear in other passages. Another thing we learn in Psalm 51 is that this is, uh, we sin against God. He sets the standard. He sets the bar pretty high. It's called absolute righteousness or perfection. So when we fall short of that, we are to admit or acknowledge our sin to him 
uh, in prayer. So David says, against you. Well, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about the others that are harmed? Well, that's a different problem. But sin is, against, sin is always against God. So he says, because it's God's righteousness that we have violated. So he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when, just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now, later on, he will say to the Lord, different, notice the different words that are used, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Purging is just another word for cleansing, but when you're in poetry, you're using different synonyms as you express the same concept. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That's what happens. Isn't that wonderful? We sin, whether it's just a small sin or whether we have done something and we have really blown it and it hurts a lot of people. God washes us clean. God forgives us. God makes us whiter than snow. God doesn't say, okay, you're going to do this 5,732 more times in the next year, and so don't come to me now and say, well, you know, I'm never going to do it. I know better. God knows. All we have to do, because Christ paid for the sin, that's the foundation, as we'll see. And so David says, make me hear joy and gladness because he's come under the oppression of guilt for what he has done. And he needs to be to know he's been forgiven and that God's not going to bring it up again. Some people bring past wrong deeds up over and over again, but that's not God-like. God says, I'll forget it. We'll see that in just a minute. So he says to the Lord, Make me hear joy and gladness that comes from realizing your forgiveness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. That's just metaphor. He didn't have physical bones. But he in Psalm 32, it says he hurt, he ached in his bones and in his muscles. Uh, and so the guilt weighed on him. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Not just the ones I'm confessing, but all of them. 1 John 1, 9 says that you confess your sins. God is faithful and just to forgive you of sins, that what you just mentioned, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. In Psalm 32, which is a response after he realizes his forgiveness, he says, He begins, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's what happened when he realized that forgiveness. In verse 3, it says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old. Through my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. He's in deep depression He's overwhelmed by his guilt. We know that some time went by in this period before Nathan came and confronted him with it, and then he confessed his sin. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. This is the same verb. It's a different format. It's a hyphial, which means causative. I caused you to know my sin. In other words, he is informing God of what he did. He admitted it. He said, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So confession there, when he says, I will confess, what are the words that are synonymous with it? Acknowledge. Other passages, it's admit. That's what a confession is. It's not remorse. It's owning up to what you did. And he says in verse 7, You are my hiding place, another image of a fortress. You shall preserve me from trouble. You will surround me with the songs of deliverance. The result is total forgiveness. God forgets. So should we. Take a look at Psalm 103.12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. When you confess sin, God forgives Cleanses, forgets. Most of us don't. We either continue with guilt or somebody else continues to remind us. Isaiah 43:25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Now, God's omniscient, so he always knows about it. But what that means is he's not going to bring it up again. He's not going to hold it against you in the future. It's been eradicated. So for us, church age, Christ's death on the cross provides the basis for all forgiveness. That's 1 John 1, 7. I've heard some people say, see, 1 John 1, 7 says the blood of Christ uh, cleanses us from all sin. That's what happens. So if you're a believer, you don't have to uh, confess sin. Well, then why does he even mention it two verses later? That's not logical. See, he gives the basis there in 1 John 1, 7, and then the means in 1 John 1, 9. We admit or acknowledge our sin. And cleansing is the key term. We have to be cleansed. We'll find that over and over again. So the basis for cleansing is Christ's completed payment for our sins on the cross, 1 John 1, 7. The blood, that is a metaphor for the death of Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But the means is in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That includes the things you didn't admit, you didn't want to admit, things you forgot, the things you didn't know were sins. God is so gracious. You'll never learn grace if you can't understand God's forgiveness. Because God's grace is unlimited. It's just amazing. He wants to forgive us. He just says, admit it to me, and you're cleansed. So 1 John 1.9 nine says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. There are several verses similar to that in Jeremiah where God tells Jeremiah, don't pray about these people. They have sinned and sinned and the discipline now is certain and I'm not going to listen if you pray. I will not hear. And some people get all upset about that. What do you mean God won't listen to my prayer? Well, you have to read the book and the instruction manual. God will tell you when he'll listen to your prayer, when you won't. And if you're continuing to live in carnality, he won't. Um, James 4.8, 
draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How do you do that? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. He's writing to a Jewish audience. I believe this is the first epistle written in the New Testament. When did a priest cleanse his hands? When he goes into the tabernacle, the first thing he would do is wash his hands and wash his feet. It was a picture of, being, of confession of sin. 1 Corinthians 11.28 says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. See, one of the things you have to realize is if you want to be in the place where you're going to handle the difficulties of life on God's power and strength and not yours, is you have to learn how to get inside that soul fortress. And that's confession of sin. The result of that is the second one. I'm not going to get to all five this morning, but this is the second one, and that is to walk by means of the Spirit. We get to the place where we can walk by the Spirit as a result of confessing sin. When we are restored to fellowship, what we do inside the soul fortress there is we walk by the Spirit. There are other terms that are used for it that are synonyms. At salvation, we are both indwelt and filled by means of the Spirit. We are indwelt permanently, but the first time we sin, we lose that filling ministry. We'll talk more about that in the coming parts, but we'll get there. Whatever is done in the power of the Holy Spirit, Scripture says, is gold, silver, and precious stones, using that as a metaphor for the fact that it has eternal value. It is produced as a result of our walk by the Spirit. And whatever is done in the power of the sin nature has just temporal value. It's going to blow away with the wind, and so it's wood, hay, and straw. That It has no lasting value, 1 Corinthians three eleven to 15. When we sin, uh, we grieve the Holy Spirit. We're no longer walking. I got distracted in the middle of that, I'm sure. We're, we're no longer walking by the Spirit. I hate phone calls. I'm typing something, and there goes that thought, and I finish it. And we no longer walk. We grieve by the Holy Spirit. Immediately, we're walking according to the sin nature. It's our default position. As soon as you take your eyes off the Spirit, boom, you're walking according to the sin nature. Third, therefore, we must recover that walk by the Spirit, and that's admitting our sin to God. We see this in passages like Galatians 5, 16 through 21. Paul gives the command in verse 16, I say, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not. It's a double negative plus a subjunctive verb. Now, that grammar goes past you, but what that means is that it is, it's a way of stating an absolute uh, condition. You will not. It's impossible to. So people say, well, what does that mean? How do I sin then? Well, you take your eyes off the ball and you get hit by the ball. In Peter's case, he took his eyes off the Lord and what? Began to sink. See, when you're, you're, before you sin, you're going to shift your focus from positive volition to negative. You're going to shift it away from the Lord and then you are going to sin because that's the default position. Walking by the Spirit is a conscious thing. It takes a long time to really ingrain that in ourselves. So we're doing, you know, especially as baby believers or, or adolescent believers and maybe even mature believers, we're confessing sin a lot. 
But that doesn't mean you're just being overtly introspective. You don't have to identify every single one of them. Some people say, oh, I just can't believe God wants me to confess my sins. I have, I can't remember them all. Well, you don't have to. You know, you confess sins. The, the text says, if you confess your sin, uses the word, this Greek word there. He says, he will forgive you of your sins, uses the same Greek word, which means that the sins you had confessed to, whether it's two, three, four, whatever, he, those sins he forgives, and then he cleanses you from all unrighteousness. Romans 8.3 says something very similar. It says what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, not in sinful flesh, but he looked like every other human being. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That same contrast runs in, in Romans 8. You're going to walk by the Spirit, or you're going to walk by the sin nature. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So what are you thinking about? Ephesians 4.30 tells us, and I'm pointing this out because these, most of these spiritual skills are alluded to, are mentioned in Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's in the midst of his listing several sins. So when we sin, it grieves the Spirit because he's on the road to making us mature and I'm going to anthropomorphize this or anthropopathize this. He goes, oh no, not again. I got to start over. It's not quite like that, but grieving the Spirit is, is an anthropopathic term. That means he's using a human emotion to describe a, a, a negative that happens from that relationship. So God the Holy Spirit is the divine empowerment to understand, retain, remember, and apply the Word of God. The Holy Spirit helps us. Someday I'm going to say, well, what happens to the Holy Spirit when I get Alzheimer's? That's one of my first questions for God. What about people who have dementia? Other things like that. But God understands. He, he wants to be gracious and kind to us, so he takes care of us. The Holy Spirit produces spiritual growth. This is Ephesians 5.18. That's coming up. That's in our passage. Be filled by means of the Spirit. And in its corollary passage in Colossians 3.16, he enables our spiritual gift. This is mentioned in Ephesians four, uh, in Ephesians four seventeen, that uh, we are four seven rather. I can't read, uh, but to each one of us, grace was given. Those are spiritual gifts. To each one of us, grace was given. So that's part of the, the work of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says that we are to be filled, and it's not with the Spirit in terms of content. It's means of the Spirit. Now, if I had a cup up here, I'd say fill it with coffee. So that would be talking about the content that you're putting in there. But if I say fill it with that pitcher, then the pitcher is the means of getting the coffee in there. And the problem is that we use our English prepositions with, such as with, to indicate both content and means. That's confusing. 
The Greek's not that confusing. It has to do with means. And the result is that we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, even for those who don't want to sing. If you say, I'm not going to sing, you're grieving the Spirit. That's just an implication of the passage. Because if we're being filled by the Spirit, then we are to be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. And the next verse says, giving thanks for all things. Colossians 3.16, the parallel, the command is different. It's let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What that verse says is the result of letting the word of Christ dwell richly in you are the same results of being filled by means of the Spirit. One says, talks about the spiritual power in there, and the other talks about the Word of God. But it's the Spirit of God who fills us with the Word of God that enables us to live like children of God. That puts the passages together. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by means of the Spirit, and you won't carry out the deeds of the flesh. So that is what it means to be filled by the Spirit. First of all, we have to confess sin. So what have we learned? We have learned that God's Word is sufficient. That means it it gives us everything we need to know in order to face and handle and resolve and live in the midst of excruciating difficulty. Many Christians in this world live under persecution day in and day out. But what they are to do is to trust the Lord. And so they do that. They are in that furnace of testing. But we live in a different furnace. We live in the furnace of prosperity testing. And we fail miserably. No nation in history has ever passed the prosperity test. And we live in a culture that is failing it miserably, and many believers are failing it miserably, because prosperity is one of the greatest distractions to dependence upon God. But we have to learn that it is God's word and it is God who is sufficient. He can uh, handle any problem. There's no problem that you face or I face that he wasn't aware of in eternity past. And he's given us provision through the promises of his word so that we can apply them. And Peter says it means that we partake of the divine nature through his precious promises. Well, we'll get to that next week in terms of in terms of the faith rest drill. But first, we have to learn how to deal with sin, because sin distracts us. It puts us right back in the place where we're relying upon ourselves and on limited human knowledge. So we have to admit or acknowledge our sin to God, and that is partially grace orientation, because it means we have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And the result of that is that immediately God the Holy Spirit is acting in a way that is not simply trying to get us back into fellowship, but he is acting positively so we can grow and go forward, and we have to learn to walk step by step by God the Holy Spirit. So that focuses our attention on the sufficiency of God, the sufficiency of his word, the sufficiency of grace, and the sufficiency of the cross. We don't need anything else. We need to major 
in what the Bible says. So we'll come back next time to continue this and look at the next three spiritual skills that we have to develop. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you so much that at the cross, Christ died for our sins. He died in our place. He was our substitute. He paid the legal penalty of spiritual death that was incurred by uh, Adam's sin, and by doing such, we have uh, forgiveness when we trust in Christ. We have new life when we trust in Christ. But all that is required is trusting in Christ. His death is sufficient. And when we sin as believers on the basis of the fact that we are saved, on the basis of the fact that the sin's paid for, all we have to do is admit or acknowledge our sin. And we're instantly cleansed from all sin and all unrighteousness. So, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us by that because so often we fail and we yield to guilt, we yield to uh, human viewpoint solutions, and we need to refocus on the biblical solutions. Father, we pray that anyone listening who's never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would recognize that we're talking about how to live after you're saved. What you do to be saved is simply to believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that we are to believe in him, believe on his name, believe he is the eternal son of God who took on humanity, died for our sins, paid the penalty in full. So all that we do is trust in him. And at that instant, we're immediately made a new creature in Christ, given a new identity. We are justified. We are forgiven. All of those things happen simultaneously. So, Father, we just praise you that we have these things. And pray for those who don't, that they might come to understand the good news of the gospel. And, Father, we ask that you would uh, just strengthen us. As we go forward today and through this week to focus upon your word and change priorities where necessary. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.